later. <laughs> Not much. Anyway, uh, the 82nd Airborne are back from Afghanistan as of 9-11 of all days. That's when they got back uh, to Fort Bragg, 9-11. And they are jumping, which is good, because that's what they do. So last week they had two jumps and no injuries. Everybody survived it, and they're all getting used to being uh, stateside and not having... Um, they, they took direct fire 26 times in six months and lost nine members of their organization. So that was the most the 82nd has ever taken. Uh, the day my son was flying out, he and about 25 other paratroopers, they were in a helicopter flying from what they call their forward operating base to a main base. And they were fired upon. And he said that we thought that was it, even on our way out. Uh, and uh, anyway, they survived. I said, what do you do when something like that's happening? He said, I just, you know, we, you pray and then you... I get out my little book and I put down number 25. So what do you mean number 25? That's the 25th uh, direct fire episode that we survived by God's grace. So he has this log book. And anyway, doing fine and thank you very much. Which leads me to this. One of our members, Rex, is now in Afghanistan. You have been so gracious to uh, pray for him. I have taken photos of you. Uh, as you know, from time to time, and I send him one a week, of, and I say, uh, Rex, I want you to know your um, church family is praying for you, and it's a beautiful photo of you with heads bowed, eyes closed. I send it e email-wise, and he gets it almost instantaneously, and then we passed out Rex's address over the last two weeks in the event you wanted to write a note or send a box with goodies. If you did, a man in a prior class filled out some of it already for you, because it's no small feat to get this done through the post office. It's a little complicated. So he took it, and the postmaster filled out the, not all, but some of the most relevant information. So this is a packing slip. If you'd like it, uh, please take it, take one before you leave today. And just to clarify, I had a cute lady in one of the prior classes saying, Stuart, I must have misunderstood because I went to the post office, had a box, and I just asked them for one stamp, a, a normal stamp to put on it because didn't you say one stamp? No, 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 that's for letters. If you, <laughs> if you send a letter, just a normal stamp. If it's a box, uh, post office has some options. They're called flat rate boxes. Uh, medium size is $11 and a larger is $13. And you can send all kinds of stuff. You know what they like? Uh, hot sauce, Tabasco, Louisiana hot sauce. Uh, sorry to mention Louisiana for all you Aggies. You had a very bad day yesterday. I'm so, I didn't mean to do that. I feel so bad for you. But keep trying. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> go Tigers. So anyway, uh, uh, they like stuff like that. Uh, chocolate, um, coffee, uh, a uh, couple people sent some shirts, uh, Texas shirts, things like that. Just just stuff to remind them that they're thought of and uh, all the rest. And so uh, if you have not received Rex's address and would like it, just let me know. I'll get you a little card. And again, those are the packing slips for him. They're anxious to come home. It's a little rough on them now because it's getting to be cold weather time in Afghanistan. And the Afghan people, many of whom are poor, are burning just about everything to stay warm. As a result, the air quality has been affected. So there's much ash in the air, and the, so the men and women who are serving over there are inhaling it. And many are coming down with respiratory uh, problems. These are things who would think about this, but, but it's happening. Yes, sir. They are not up for another mobilization at this point. They're on what's called global readiness status, which means they have to be ready to go anywhere at any time. Uh, so I'm kind of hoping it's uh, Pearland or something. You know? Hey, we've got trouble there. I ran into this like real mean lady at Walmart the other day. I'm telling you. So we'll see. It's an interesting day in which we live. And it was an interesting de Debbie, there you are. Debbie took pictures of us last week. I, I had a, one of the signs Yolanda and her daughter made, I brought into our staff meeting. And uh, all the staff was there, and I asked them to, 
they would sit and we held the sign that said, we love you, Rex. And, and uh, I sent it to him, uh, to Rex, and he got it. And it just meant a lot that the Sagemont staff um, are behind him and that you are behind him. That really means a lot to him. Then I send, I send a little summation sometimes of what we're doing here in Bible study. And, um, you know, just, just to kind of keep him in the loop. He has, uh, I don't know, maybe... Maybe five months left. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Anyway, Deb took some pictures because we're thinking of maybe making postcards out of them that we could all send over there. Okay, we can do it again next week. Bring the sign in case you missed and so on. Okay, we are in Luke chapter twenty-three today. Luke chapter twenty-three. While you turn there, I'll give you background. Luke chapter 23, uh, the Lord had been experiencing a series of trials. If you counted, they number approximately six in close succession, one to the other. They could be roughly divided into two categories. Some are religious in nature, others are civic slash political in nature. The religious trials there were three, were before the equivalent of the Supreme Court in ancient Israel, the Sanhedrin, religious trials. The political civil trials were before representatives of Rome because Rome had conquered this land in this day and occupied it. Rome established its government over Israel in this day. So you have these three trials. The first... Uh, uh, took place soon after the Lord was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was brought to the home of a man named Annas. Annas was a retired high priest. Uh, the Lord was tried, interrogated before Annas. This would be the first trial of a religious nature, Pro probably at about 2 o'clock in the morning. If you could just get the chronology, it'll become significant in a second. About 2 in the morning. After that, Annas sent him to the then presiding high priest, who happened to be his son-in-law. His name was Caiaphas. So that would have been at approximately um, 3 o'clock in the morning at this point. Then Caiaphas imprisoned him until the next morning, uh, such that between the hours of about 5 and 6 a.m., before the offering of the morning sacrifice... This made it in total violation of Jewish law. You could not have a trial at that point, but they did. The third religious trial was when the Lord appeared before the Sanhedrin, consisting of 70 members and one presiding officer, a total of 71. They met in a certain precinct of the temple called the Court of Yun Stones. I mentioned to you it was a semicircular arrangement so all those presiding could see each other, read each other's nonverbal signals and so on. The accused would stand while they sat, so the Lord was standing. He was interrogated there and at a certain point the presiding Sanhedrin member said enough. We got enough. He's incriminated himself. I asked him a plain and simple question. I said, are you the son of God? He said, yup. And he not only said yes, he said, you know, though you sit in judgment of me now, there will be a day when I will sit in judgment of you. In fact, I'm going to be elevated so as to sit at the right hand of the Most High God. That meant a lot in that day. It meant access, intimate access to God that no one could have. This is way beyond entry into the Holy of Holies. This is essentially to say, I possess equivalence with God. I share divine nature. That's how they responded, because they threw up their hands and said, enough is enough. We no longer have a need for further interrogation. This is a blasphemous statement. So having come to that conclusion, they then sent him to trial number four. Now we're transitioning from religious orientation to political and the political representative who will meet with this Jesus first is a guy named Pilate, trial number five, uh, four. Pilate sends him to another politician, Herod, trial number five. Herod kicks him back over to Pilate, uh, uh, trial number six, prior to his execution. So that's what's going on. Today, 
we will read about trial number four and five and allude to trial number six. So take a look, uh, Luke 23, verse one. Then the whole body of them, who's the them? Yeah, that's the Sanhedrin. The whole body got up. See, they're finished. They feel like they have the evidence they need to convict him. By the way, blasphemy is a capital crime. According to the law of Moses, it bears the penalty of execution. So they have what they want. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. So I ask you a question. If they're determined that they're right about this, they have the evidence they need to convict this Jesus of blasphemy. Why, why are they sending him over to Pilate? What's up with that? What do you think, Randy? He's going to be a soon. That is true. That is true. And, and so uh, you feel like that would be a little more like in Pilate's domain. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Absolutely correct. But why don't, why, why don't they just deal? Yes, ma'am. They wanted to blame it on the Roman authorities. Think about this. It is not that all the Jewish people had this kill Jesus mentality. When you read the Gospels, could I offer a word of caution? When you see the word the Jews, please exercise discernment because in most cases it's a reference to the Jewish religious leadership. That is important because anti-Semitism through the millennia has been justified biblically on the basis of a misinterpretation of the phrase. Since all Jews rejected Jesus, we kill them. By the way, I have relatives who survived the Holocaust who, when they were brought into a concentration camp, were met with a sign which said in German, you killed our God, now we kill you. So you see, you got to be careful. Uh, in the Bible, when you see the Jews, the Jews, it's usually chief priests and scribes. They bear major responsibility. So says Ezekiel, woe you false shepherds who lead my people astray. I didn't say my people don't have responsibility, but the major culpability is with our, is with our religious leadership. So anyway, um, most of the Jews were attracted to Jesus. Few as Savior, but most were attracted. I mean, he was doing things no other rabbi had hitherto done. Miracles and things like that. Also, his teaching was different. Remember it said he teaches as one with authority? He didn't have to uh, quote, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so. He could quote, he could share out of his own intrinsic authority. So they were enamored by this Rabbi Jesus. So the Jewish religious leaders say, what are we going to do? If we play our hand here and and kill him, there'll be an uprising of the people. If there's an uprising of the people, Rome will hear about it. If Rome hears about it, they will clamp down on us in a more oppressive way. But if we turn him over to Pilate, and Pilate adjudicates the case on different grounds, as Randy is, is sharing with us, then the uh, onus, the burden of responsibility will be on him, will be off the hook. So that's what's going on. So let me tell you about Pilate. Pilate was not a good guy. But he was a really good politician. Now, I know it's a stretch to think that the two... <laughs> just use your imagination. This guy was a consummate politician. He was a climber. He was a tremendously uh, ambitious person but he was a creep as a, as a person. I mean, just a creep. He uh, was governor of Judea for about 10 years under Roman authority. He's in Jerusalem now on this occasion because there's a feast of the Jews going on there. Do you know which one it is? No. It, uh, it's Passover. But thank you, Brenda, for your boldness, courage, and enthusiasm. <laughs> it was... <laughs> Yeah, three, okay, two weeks ago, this is another day. Give me a break. I'll give you a break. 
So it was Passover, and it was one of the pilgrim feasts of Israel, so everyone go, goes to the city. Here's the deal. Pilate could care less about Passover. He's not Jewish. He doesn't even like the Jews. He hates them. They hate him. But during Passover, a lot of times there was a rise in messianic fervor. There was an expectation of Messiah like never before. You could have two claiming to be it, claiming to be Messiah. They could have a fight. Their respective followings could get in trouble, uh, and there could be a terrible uh, upheaval. If that happened during Pilate's watch, Rome would say, apparently, you can't control these subjugated peoples. Therefore, we will remove you from office. Remember, he could care less about the people. He's a climber. He's a consummate politician, don't you see? He's a self-seeking guy. So he shows up in Jerusalem during this time just to make sure things don't get out of hand. But where he really resided was an unbelievably beautiful place called Caesarea. If you go to Israel today, you'll hear it pronounced Kazaria, Kazaria. You'll say, what in the world? That's Caesarea. It's named after Caesar, Augustus Caesar, who was a patron of a fellow named Herod the Great. Not great because of virtue, because he too was a horrible human person. Uh, great because of his construction projects. Here's what he did at Caesarea. It's a magnificently beautiful place. You can go there today and see it. It's on the Mediterranean coast. It is just beautiful. The problem is the coast is very smooth. So you can't conduct trade. No ships could land there. There's no natural harbor. No problem for Herod, who had thousands of slaves. Uh, he made a harbor, a man-made harbor, using a form of concrete uh, that could harden, take form, while underwater. I mean, the guy is a genius. By the way, there's a fine line between genius and insanity, right? He, like, crossed it by the minute. This, he went back and forth between the two. But anyway, he built a harbor. If you go to Caesarea today, you can look into the water. You can actually see the remnants, the outline of the harbor there that Herod built. So he built it in honor of his patron, Caesar Augustus. And Rome established Caesarea as the seat of their government in the land, not Jerusalem, Caesarea. Pilate had beachfront real estate. He doesn't want to go to Jerusalem with all these Jews freaking out and doing all these weird things. He wants to stay home, but he has to go to Passover. I guarantee he doesn't have a good attitude about this whole thing right now, but he has to do it. You know, it's a politically correct thing to do. So he's in Jerusalem, and he hates the people there, the Jews, and they, in turn, hate him. He got off to a really bad start. When he was first appointed governor of Judea, he marched Roman soldiers through the streets of Jerusalem carrying flags on which were um, the images of a pantheon of Roman gods, as if to say to the Jews, here are your gods. But the Jews don't go for this. That's like idolatry. You know, you're supposed to worship the one God of Israel and so on. So they say, we're not going for it. Pilate, he says, oh, yeah, I'll cut off your heads. That's how they do negotiations in those days. It's really uh, efficient. And the Jews say, oh, yeah, I dare you. I double dare you. I'm not kidding you. They call his bluff. He doesn't do it. He doesn't kill him. Why? Because Rome will find out about it. They'll say, you're kidding me. This is what you do? Can't you take care of things? You've got to cut off people's heads? What's up? So he loses a lot of face with the Jews there, and they are just poking fun of him. A few years later, he pulls another fast one. He takes money from the temple uh, treasury and uses it to build an aqueduct. By the way, you can go to the, that area today and see aqueducts dating 2,000 years that can still be used to carry water. They're, it, unbelievable. The Romans were unbelievable engineers. So anyway, he uses money from the temple treasury to build aqueducts. So the Jews don't like this at all. They rebel. Well, this time he had enough with diplomacy, and he does cut off their heads. He just kills like a whole bunch of them. And in, in, in fact, the word gets back to Rome. They issue from Rome, the emperor, you don't mess with him, a scathing rebuke of Pilate. So not only is his life in jeopardy, his, his political career is very, this is a mark against a climber. He's not getting a good report, you see. So there was tremendous antagonism between Pilate and the Jews. Just to give you some background. Now, um, 
historians who criticize the Bible as being inaccurate historically and archaeologically have essentially said there's no supporting extra-biblical evidence even for the existence of someone named Pontius Pilate. That's what they said until not too many years ago there was found a stone on which was engraved the name Pontius Pilate, governor of the province of Judea. It's called the Pilate Stone. You can see it in Israel today. Now, by the way, I hope you don't need that to create your faith. I hope your faith in the biblical record is more substantial than that. But I just want to tell you, science and archaeology uh, has a heyday in criticizing the Bible, but after over time, it doesn't stand. Uh, the Bible instructs science and archaeology, not the other way, not the other way around. Okay, so this is Pontius Pilate. Now, here's the deal. He's governor of a province called Judea, three main provinces in Israel then and sort of today. The most northern is called Galilee, which means district. We call it... Uh, um, Galil Hagoyim, Galil Hagoyim, which means Galilee of you guys. Galilee of Hagoyim, the Gentiles. Why is it called that? Because when marauding armies, invaders would enter into the land, they often did from the north, where Galilee was, and they settled there. So it took on a predominantly uh, Gentile character. So it's known as Galilee of the Gentiles. That's the most northern province. You dip down a little bit, you get to another one called Samaria. And you know who lived in Samaria? The Samaritans. Now, the Jews did not like the Samaritans because it was thought they, they worshipped kind of a mongrel god, kind of a hybrid, and you could get defiled. And so the scriptures tell us that the, though the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, the Jews, instead of going from the southern province, if they wanted to get to Galilee, by going through Samaria, would go around it. But not the Jews' Jew, the Lord Jesus. He knew he could communicate his righteousness, but he would not, they could not communicate their unrighteousness. So anyway, that's Samaria. By the way, you read about and hear about the West Bank today? You hear about West Bank, Ramallah, places like that in the West Bank, a place of controversy today? That's Samaria. Just to show you, West Bank, it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. That's ancient Samaria. When you hear about West Bank, just think Samaria. Judea and Samaria. So then you have, so you have Galilee, Samaria, and then just south of Samaria is the province of Judea. Jerusalem is located in Judea. That's why Pilate is there. He had jurisdiction over the, because he was the governor of Judea. So keep that in mind, because it's going to become important in just, in just a second. Okay, so Pilate's there, and the Sanhedrin bring Jesus for a trial number, I guess this would be trial number five or four, I lost track, to Pilate. And in verse 2, it says, And they began to accuse him, Jesus that is, saying, Can you take a glance at verse 2 and tell me how many separate accusations are contained therein? What do you see? Yeah, three, somebody said, or maybe it was me who said that. <laughs> it's three. Look at, look at, here, here's the first. We found this man misleading our nation, that's accusation number one, and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, a major no-no, that's accusation number two, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, accusation number three. There you have it. What do you think is surprising about the nature of these three accusations? Remember who it's coming from. It's coming from the Jewish religious leadership. Do you find anything interesting about these three accusations? It relates to what Randy was leading us to a little while ago. Nothing spiritual, no religious stuff, nothing like that. Why? The Jews knew that Pilate was a very irreligious man. The Romans had a good technique. You conquer people, you subjugate them, but you let them keep their religion. Who cares? The Romans said. Just as long as they add the worship of Caesar to it, or at least show some measure of respect. It was a really good way to do it. So Pilate could care less about internal Jewish religious controversy. 
So their accusation of Jesus was blasphemy according to their law. That is a blatantly religious accusation. Uh, the case would have been dismissed out of hand immediately by Pilate. He's a politician. He doesn't care about this. You know what I mean? Separation of temple and state or whatever in those days. So, uh, so, so, so they couch things in civic terms. So the first one, he's misleading our nation. It's kind of a national level thing. Yeah, but wait, that is at best a question. That's very subjective. How do you prove that? Pilate's listening to it. That's a very subjective. In fact, the Lord Jesus could have turned it back on them. No, 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 no. You're misleading the nation. I mean, this is just a, a little bit of a he said, she said kind of a thing. Accusation number two, a little more serious. He refuses to pay taxes to Caesar. This is a major no-no. But all Pilate had to do with that one is look up the records and find out that's not true. That's... The first one is questionable, first accusation. The second is a blatant lie. Because if you remember one time earlier in Luke, Luke chapter 20, the Lord was questioned about taxes. And he said, here's the deal. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And render to God what is God's. What is Caesar's? What government is ordained by God? Bad government is not ordained by God. But the concept of government is very much divine. Read Romans 13 and other such places. Government's not an evil. Evil government is an evil, but government is a good thing. Anyway, so uh, the Lord said, no, you need to submit to, support, and respect government through taxation. So give that to Caesar. That's his due. But hey, 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 don't get confused about this. But don't give to Caesar what belongs to God, like veneration worship, those kinds of things. And by the way, if Caesar ever requires you to do something contrary to the will of God, don't do it. That's called civil disobedience, which is a topic for another. I addressed it some years ago, and I can uh, direct you to the, a tape of the message if you're interested. That's not what we're doing today. But the Lord was not guilty of not paying taxes, nor of encouraging his followers not to. In fact, he did it. So Caesar knows this, but now you got a third charge. He, uh, he claims to be Christ, which means Messiah, anointed one. This one, though, a king. You know they're right. That one is true. But he didn't claim to be a king as they thought. He did not come to replace one political enterprise with another. His kingdom is uh, of, it's spiritual. It's not geopolitical. By the way, vote for sure. But your kingdom is not geopolitical either. Be careful about an undue focus of attention on that which is temporary and earthly. No matter who's in the White House, it's temporary and earthly. I didn't say don't take it seriously. Don't misunderstand. We better take it seriously. But be careful. Uh, the Savior is not up for this year's election, last time I checked. It's two men, flawed though they be. Two men, vote for the one, as you heard Brother Chuck's message. Who, uh, whose uh, position seems to be most consistent with uh, the light uh, of Scripture, for sure, for sure. But don't put undue hope in, uh, in a surrogate redeemer, in, in political guys. <laughs> There's only one redeemer, and his name is Jesus. So anyway, uh, he, he claimed to be king, but not in the political sense. Nonetheless, this one... Pilate has to address, you see, because this has the potential of being sedition and treason. If he doesn't act on this and word gets back to Caesar, Caesar, someone is trying to replace you, then Pilate's head could roll. So he says what he does in verse 3. Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Does your Bible say something else? Thou sayest, or maybe you have one that simply says yes. It's a Hebrew idiom. See where it says, it is as you say? That means you have spoken correctly, or basically the Lord is answering in the affirmative. Yes, I am king of the Jews. But let me ask you a question. Do you think during this time of interrogation, as Pilate looked to this figure, this Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua, do you think Pilate imagined that one 
to actually be king of the Jews? If not, why not? What was Pilate seeing? What kind of appearance was the Lord displaying at that point? No question, Patsy. Dirty sandals, humble clothing. No, he's looking rather ordinary. It, listen to me. If he walked in the room, you wouldn't get up and give him your seat. It would not be Yule Brenner or whatever. Isaiah tells us he had no form nor comeliness that we should be drawn to him. In other words, there was nothing physically attractive about him. You know what he looked like? He looked like a dark-skinned little Jew. I'm trying to tell you. That's, he's from the middle. That's what he was. Dark-skinned little Jew, curly hair. He did not have long, straight, blonde hair and beautiful blue eyes, you know, I mean, as is depicted in various... I mean, that's not the deal. He looked, he looked like everybody else. But he, but he didn't even look like everybody else in this case. He looked worse. Think about this. What would you look like, ladies? You have not had a chance to put on makeup. Listen, he, got, he gets dragged from the Garden of Gethsemane, the first trial at 2, the second at 3, the next between 5 and 6, this one's 6.30. Who knows if he ate? He surely didn't sleep. What do you look like without sleep? Horrible. Yeah. And uh, who knows if he had a chance to groom, whatever. Not only that, you know what his experience was during this time? He's being toyed with and mocked. He's being beaten. He's probably bloodied. Do you remember what the Roman guards did to him? You know, remember they, they blindfolded him? Oh, Mr. Prophet, boom, who hit you? Tell us, prophesy. Remember they pulled this? The Romans, you can go to the place where the Lord was held captive. You can look down in the ground, inscribed in marble. You can see the games the Roman guards played while they, had, while they were bored, while they weren't playing games. You can actually see it. They were like gambling games. They're still in, inscribed in stone. They were messing with the Lord, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So, I mean, let me just say this. He didn't look very regal. He looked like no threat to Caesar. Are you kidding me? Pilate's got to be thinking, what is with you Jews? That's a king? He doesn't look like anyone's king. I don't think, I mean, Caesar would rebuke me if I suggested this guy is a threat to Caesar. So this is what happens. Verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. <laughs> He's not guilty of... He's not, what could he, do? look at this guy. What could this guy do to Caesar? Are you kidding me? I find no guilty. Let me ask you a question. If you're the judge evaluating evidence in a trial situation and you find no insufficient evidence to convict, what do you do then? You release the person. Pilate did not release Jesus. Why not? He was afraid. Remember, this guy's a consummate politician. This guy will violate personal conviction in order to stay in office. I know this is a stretch. I know this. I know this is history. When we were less civilized and sophisticated than we are today, I know this. But this was a day when politicians would say to their constituency, what they felt their constituency wanted to hear. History. It's just history. Aren't you glad we've come so, f so far? You know, why I you know why I did what I just did? Because that will not show up on the audio tape. Since if you accuse me, I denied it. No, no, I was respectful the whole time. I did not do the vomit sign. Yes. Well said. Diane said, he's between a rock and a hard place. He, you know, what does he do? He's got the Jews, he's got the Romans. That's hey, it's rough being a dishonest politician. <laughs> hey, you think it's easy? You couldn't probably do it. You probably have too much character. And character apparently can be used against you today in government. <clears throat> so, we shall move on. Uh, he doesn't release him, and here's the reason, verse 5. They kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea. See, they, want, they just want him executed. But look at this. 
he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. So remember, Galilee, the province in the north, in the middle, Samaria, in the south, Judea. Remember, Pilate is governor of Judea. He hears the word Galilee. And, verse 7, when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate is thinking, the stars are with me. The gods are with me. He actually did think that. I can't believe this. This is my lucky day. I can wash my hands of all this dirty, filthy, who cares about it, Jewish stuff. I can dump this king of the Jews on Herod because this Galilean is in Herod's jurisdiction. Herod had control, governorship, not of Judea, but of Galilee. And this is so fortuitous. Herod's in town also for the same reason. Herod was not a worshiper of the one true God. He didn't care about Passover. It's just politically correct. You got to show up. You know what I mean? During a holiday like this, Pilate and Herod hate each other's guts, but they're going to find something that brings them together. You'll see. So here's the deal. When you read the Bible, you will see Herod's name mentioned a lot. That's a problem because there's more than one. And you really have to work hard at distinguishing one from the other. Otherwise, you get real confused. For instance, the Herod, who you probably know most about, was a guy called Herod the Great. He's called great, as I mentioned, because of his building projects. I mentioned the harbor on Caesarea at Caesarea, Herod the Great. This is a place outside of Bethlehem called Herodion. It's a conical shape, hill, natural. Herod brought thousands of slaves there and he made them carve out the inside of this cone and he built his palace on the inside. You can go right past it. You can be on it and not know Herod's there. He survived there. In fact, they found his body there years ago. They couldn't find Herod's body for years and years. They found it buried there at Herodion. It is unstinking believable to see what this guy could pull off. Have you heard of, uh, well, have you heard of the temple? I've got that. In Jerusalem, Herod built that. Solomon's temple, re rebuilt Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Have you heard of a place called Masada? Masada, which means stronghold or fortress. It's in the Dead Sea area. It's a three-tiered palace Herod built on this mountain top. Uh, he was, that's Herod the Great. He's the guy who killed Jewish babies under the age of two. You know, he heard from the Magi, these Jews have an expectation of a king, of a redeemer coming. Herod goes, oh man, I don't like competition. Therefore, he ordered the murder of Jewish babies. That's Herod the Great. Also, great politician, not a good guy, not at all. Well, he has children. What do you think they turned out to be like? It's not always this way, but in this case it was, like father, like son. So when Herod's time ends, they divide up his kingdom four ways. They're called tetrarchies from the word four. There's a, one of his sons named Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee. That's the Herod we're reading about now. His name is Herod Antipas. Antip he's not Herod the Great. He's the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was given the province of Galilee. He and Pilate hated each other. They would not cross over into each other's turf, but they're both in Jerusalem now. Pilate hears this Jesus is from Herod's territory. Therefore, he shuffles him over to Herod. That's kind of what's happening here. And look what happens. Verse 8. Herod was really glad. When he saw Jesus. Why? Well, he wanted to see him for a long time. Why? Because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Ah. Ah. This Herod, Herod Antipas, is the one who removed John the Baptist's head from his body. This is what this guy did. 
uh, he heard of this Jesus from John the Baptist. He heard of people's sins being forgiven by him. He was not interested in meeting with Jesus to repent, to bow, to yield. He was interested in meeting with Jesus for one reason only, entertainment. Whoa, the coolest magician ever. And he happens to be right here. Do some magic for me, Jesus. That's what he was doing. Entertain me. See the word sign? Herod said, uh, you know, he'd been hearing about it, was hoping to see some sign. In the original language, it actually means a testing miracle or a testing sign, meaning it has no value as a standalone thing. It only attests to something. So here's a challenge for you. Maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I doubt it. Uh, see if you can, anywhere in the scripture, show me one miracle, one, Old or New Testament, any one, that's a stand-alone miracle. Let me see, disconnect it. Just done, randomly. See if you can show me one. I would defy you to. There is none. There's no miracle in the Bible done for its own sake. It always attests to something. What do the miracles of Jesus attest to? The works Jesus did attest to the authority and veracity of the words Jesus spoke. That's the only purpose of the miracles Jesus did. He did not come to heal as an end in itself. I know today we're seeking healing as an end in itself. I know this. And that's why healers are so popular even today. You cannot show me one healing in the New Testament that doesn't serve the purpose of giving credence not to the works, but to the words of the one doing the miracle. For instance, do you remember the time Jesus, here are his words. He said, I have the authority to forgive sin. Do you have the authority to forgive sin? But you can declare it, can't you? Anyone could say the words. I have the authority to forgive sin. How are you going to know whether the words are, are, are backed up by anything? So Jesus said, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, I say to this man, get up and walk. Remember he healed the paralytic? Some would say, oh, what a cool healing thing. Show me more of that. That's Herod's point of view. By the way, that's the point of view of many Christians. Show me magic. But you're missing the point. The miracle has no value and purpose except what it points us to. The work points us to the words. Now we know Jesus has the authority to forgive sin because it's a whole lot easier to simply say those words than to heal a man who's been organically paralyzed for his life. That's why Jesus did the work. Now, if a person does not want to go from the miracle to the message, <laughs> from the work to the word, Jesus will not entrust himself to that person. This was Herod. By the way, this is not ancient history. This happens today. Churches are filled with people who want the same sensational, dramatic, magical, jump-through-my-hoop Jesus performances that Herod wanted. That's why in some churches, some of the largest in the country, you will never hear a call to discipleship, to holiness, to repentance, to the cross, to hell. You'll never hear it. You'll never hear it. Because people are coming for shallow Jesus time, just like Herod did. Shallow Jesus time. That's why Christians, maybe you, are more prone to pick a book off the bookshelf than to sit at the Lord's feet and read his word. Biblical illiteracy amongst Christians is on the rise. But everyone knows the bestseller book. The secrets of this. Why? Because we're lazy thinkers. And we're sensationalistic seekers just like Herod. I don't want the still, small voice of the Lord. I don't want to sit at his feet and be diligent in handling scripture. I'd rather read a book where some guy discovers some secret I haven't known about. It'll be a bestseller. There's a book out already. It's, I'm sure it'll be a bestseller in like three days. 
<clears throat> 31 quick promise declarations that you could declare over your life and thus determine your future. Could I tell you, at the core, that is called occultic behavior. Oh, with the Christian veneer. First of all, I guarantee you, most if not all of those 31 declarations, though they be promises from the Bible, I'll bet you they're wrenched out of the intended context. If you show that much disrespect for the word of God, he will not bless you or, or the endeavor. And to think that you can determine you, what your life will be like five years from now by what you pronounce over yourself now. You know what you just found out? You don't need God. You're God. You see, you are usurping what only God has, creative power. He could say, let there be light, and there was light. You cannot. Your words cannot determine your future. Only the God who exists outside of time has charted the course for you. You have to make do with him, not your own creative word. That philosophy is the same as in New Age occultism, only it looks like it's under the guise uh, of, of Christianity. I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you the world is going to flock to the stores to get that book, including the majority of the Christian world. I will see people walking around here with that book, and I'll grieve. I will grieve, and I'll say, lazy Christian, lazy Christian. Instead of doing uh, growing according to the word of God, apparently you're, you're so exhausted, scripture, you've got to read all these books outside of it. I am pleased to tell you, if you ever come up to me and say, Stuart, have you read such and such book? I'm more than likely, uh, respectfully, to say, you know, I haven't read it. Why? That way I don't have to weigh in on it and make you feel bad. <laughs> I could just say, apparently, unlike you, I haven't exhausted the treasures of the Scripture. Why do we call the Bible the Word of God and spend so little time in it? You tell me. You tell me. But we'll get these books. And they're going to be filled. They'll fill bookstores. I hope not ours. I'll see to it it's removed. If it's in ours, I can tell you this right now. That's crazy. I can't be at a church that puts that stuff in that bookstore. That's not going to happen over my dead body. Uh, and it should be yours too. Folks, it's the Christian hula hoop craze. Anyone with a novelty. Years ago, a guy comes out with a novelty book, The Bible Code. Tons of people in this church perused it, bought it. We're in Stuart, have you read it? This is so exciting. I, we had a visiting preacher here. We're so excited by it. Please. Michael Drosnan wrote the book, an unsaved Jewish mathematician, who said when you look to the numerical value of Hebrew letters, you can find names spelled out and unlock secrets of the Bible. Wait a second. What kind of God do you give your life to? Is your father the kind of God who will keep these secrets from you, his child, only to reveal them to an unsaved Jewish mathematician? The God I serve is not a God of secrecy. He's a God of revelation. We, have, we don't have a book of revelation. We have 66 books of revelation. He is so concerned and interested in us knowing him, he became one of us so that we can know what God is like. His name is Jesus. All these secrets undiscovered for thousands of years and suddenly unlocked. Come on. You know what we need? Fuller understanding of what is clearly stated in Scripture, not secret depths of meaning in Scripture. Are you kidding? That's Madonna Kabbalah stuff. What is with you? It's quite upsetting to me. Lazy Christians, that's what we are. Think for me, authors of these books. Think for me. That's why Solomon said, in many of books, there's confusion. Why are you getting so confused by reading all this stuff? Does that mean there's no good things? Yeah, there's good things. I would really, really be a little more careful before I go embrace a book written by someone untrained. Uh, Herod is not ancient history. Herod fills the pulpits in the pews of many churches today. So he wants Jesus to jump through his hoops, do something sensational. But Jesus doesn't play the game. If you don't show the right interest in him, he doesn't show the right interest in you, and he doesn't even answer Herod. Look, verse 9. He questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief, by the way, he answered prostitutes. He answered vile tax collectors. He answered dr uh, 
drunkards. He answered Samaritans. He answered a Pharisee who came to him over cover of night. But he won't answer a thrill seeker who wants works but not word. Here's a biblical principle we could learn from this. The right response to light, spiritual light, begets more light. So if you want the key to understanding the Bible, obey what you do understand. That's the right response to light. God gives more light. If you're not going to obey, respond rightly to the light he gave, why should he give more light? So why should he give more light to Herod? He already knows Herod is not responding rightly to the information he had. And the chief priests and scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. See, okay, Jesus, you will not entertain me. I will entertain myself by you. That's what he's doing. Now Herod and Pilate became friends. What? They became friends with one another that very day for before they had been enemies. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you're not the only one, Brenda. Listen, we don't know the reason why they were enemies, but we know the reason why they were friends. Jesus brought them together. Jesus brought these otherwise antagonistic people, and he joined their hands together. No, no, no. They became friends in a common contempt for truth, for light. And nothing's changed. And this explains the world in which we live. It's not political. That is only a superficial symptom, manifestation of what's really going on. It's light versus darkness. People in the light who've been enlightened by Jesus, diverse though they may be, politically, racially, economically, and in terms of gender, link hands together as brothers and sisters in Christ. On the other hand, uh, people groups just as diverse, racially, economically, gender-wise, and all the rest, also link hands in contempt for Jesus. It's a function of whether you're in the light or in the darkness. For the light has come into the world, and the darkness could not stand the light, for their deeds were evil. What Herod and Pilate have in common is a refusal to enter into the light, and thus you remain in darkness. The only difference between us and others is not that we're better or got it together. Listen, your political party, whatever it may be, did not give you the right mind about morality. Jesus did. When you became a Christian, you got the mind of Christ. That's why you think abortion is unacceptable. That's why you think same-gender marriage is no marriage at all. That's why you think indebtedness, the likes of which we have, is a moral issue. It's not because of your political party affiliation. Are you kidding me? It's because you're Savior. And the reason why others don't share that point of view is not because of their political party affiliation. It's because their minds are not enlightened. That's why they've chosen a certain political party affiliation. What does that mean? <clears throat> it means if the candidate of your choice is elected, I would refrain from partying in the streets. Because whoever the next president may be, is a flawed human individual. Well, then who do you vote for? As Brother Chuck so well uh, alluded to today, you vote for the person who most reflects the light of biblical truth. Most reflects. You do so imperfectly, so do I. The two candidates for office reflect the light of the Lord very imperfectly. Vote for the one who reflects light more clearly than the other. Who might that be? That's your decision. You decide. That's the point. But there's only one source of light. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I've come to enlighten. So you have to be really, really careful. Otherwise, we're going to lose a sense of our great commission. 
Part of our commission is to be good Christian citizens, pay taxes and vote and participate in the political process, but that's not our primary calling. Be really, really, really careful here. You want to see what human government did in Jesus' day? Uh, God ordained human government two purposes, protect innocent citizens, two, punish evildoers. That's the purpose of government. You know what happened in Jesus' day? It was turned around. The government protected an evildoer and convicted an innocent one. If you think government is just corrupt today, holy moly, it was just as corrupt 2,000 years ago. Jesus did not come to overturn the government. He came to establish his kingdom in our hearts. It's spiritual. It's not bounded by geography. So I didn't say you should minimize the significance of this next election. Heavens to Betsy, it's so significant. We're praying as a church. It's very significant. I'm just saying don't make it more than it is. It's temporary. It's all temporary. What will prevail is Jesus on the throne. Be careful, there's only one redeemer. It's not a Republican, it's not a Democrat, it's not an independent. No, no, no. I didn't say you shouldn't vote for the best leader, manager of the country, the one who most reflects. I didn't say that. I just say, don't think it's the second coming of the Savior if you get your candidate of choice. The only thing that is the second coming of the Savior will be the second coming of the Savior. You know what you say? Be careful, because you may be, I may be, very disappointed. Hooray! Yay! Back to when things were pristine and perfect. Oh, really? Really? It's quite interesting to me that neither candidate seems to possess very much light about the person of Jesus Christ. Go for the one who most nearly does, but both seem to be off when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. In this text in Luke, we've seen different reactions. The religious leaders flat out hated him. One political leader was indifferent, didn't want to be bothered. And the other just made fun of him. You know what they all equal to? The same, a minimization of who Jesus is, which is the equivalent of a rejection. Neither candidate, in my opinion, understands with biblical accuracy the lofty nature of who Jesus Christ is. I'm not entirely disappointed by that because this is just human government before the Lord returns. It's not a theocracy, it's a democracy. Really good, I love democracy. Vote, vote. But just be careful. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Be careful, be really, really careful. So the real thing going on in the world is light versus darkness. Why did Pilate and... Herod, who hated each other, get to be friends because Satan will target Savior. That's why. Why are you being targeted? I mean, there's all kinds of videos, anti-Christian videos made today. I don't see evangelical Christians, you know, burning down things and killing American ambassadors and all. What's, what's up? Why is it open season on Christians only, but everyone else is protected? Nah, because only Christians have the light. That's why. And the prince of darkness, why should he target those already in darkness? Why should he target Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism? It's already darkness. So it's prince of darkness against the author of light. And depending on who you're connected to, you're either going to be friends <laughs> with people similarly situated or friends with those who are connected to the light. Listen, I'm telling you. Uh, Things are heating up. Did you notice that? Holy Toledo. These are not boring days. Um, if you're on the right side, stay there. <laughs> if you're on the right side of issues, stay there. Uh, have the right, if you have the right notion of who Jesus is, cling to it no matter what. No matter what. Uh, in the end, you'll be glad you did. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Um, thank you for saving us, rescuing us. Thank you for revealing that to be your heart, for you desire for all to be saved, none to perish. That should be our heart's desire as well. That's our agenda. Spiritual, not political so much. Praying, interceding, living, sharing. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you went through. Six degrading, disrespectful trials to remind us how much you love us, that you were willing to go through this. Quite amazing. Let not one of us leave this place today feeling unloved. We are loved by the one who matters most. We apologize to you for all the humiliation you endured. It would have been at our hands as well, but we really look forward to the time when subsequent to the humiliation will be exaltation. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. Many of us, most of us here know that now. We are blessed, not arrogant, just blessed. Help us to spread the blessing in the time remaining. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, Al.